0: Bismillah Rahman Rahim. In Fatahna like a mubina. Liago fiddle like a law <laughs> who matter, god damming them, bigawa matter, a horror, you tame money, a we سُرْقَ in عَزِيزًا هُوَ الَّذِي أَنْزَلَ السَّكِينَةَ فِي قُلُوبِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ the إِيمَانًا مَعَ إِيمَانِهِمْ Hakima. In the name of Allah, the beneficent, the merciful. Indeed, we have given you a clear victory, that Allah may forgive for you what proceeded of your sins and what will follow and complete his favor upon you and guide you to a straight path. And that Allah may aid you with a mighty victory. It is he who sent down tranquility into the hearts of the believers that they would increase in faith along with their faith. And to Allah belongs the soldiers of the heavens and the earth, and ever is Allah knowing and wise. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to Season 6 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we will discuss 100 years of Middle Eastern history after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 6 1, Anatolia and Iraq. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of the previous season. The Ottoman Empire is defeated in World War I, surrendering to Great Britain on October 30, 1918. In the subsequent peace conferences, Britain and France divide up the Middle East, mostly according to the Sykes-Picot Agreement. France gets Syria and Lebanon, while Britain gets Iraq and Palestine. Sharif Hussein ibn Ali is made king of the Hejaz. And now that Great Britain controls Palestine, Prime Minister Lloyd George wants to implement the Balfour Declaration and make it into a home for the Jewish people. And with that, let's briefly recap the so-called Arab Revolt. If you'd like to support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content, then become a member of Islamic History Exclusive. We have two membership levels, one free and one paid. At the free level, you get access to season zero, season one, and all bonus episodes. The paid membership level is only $48 a year and gets you everything in the free level, plus additional content such as the story of Ibn Zubair the life of Salahuddin al-Ayubi, and, inshallah, much more to come. For more information, visit islamichistoryx.com. The Arab Revolt The Arab Revolt was one of the most important events of World War I. Sharif Hussein ibn Ali, ruler of Mecca, sided with the British and revolted against the Ottoman Empire. The British convinced Sharif Hussein to revolt by promising to create an Arab Caliphate that he would rule over. This Caliphate would include Syria, Palestine, Transjordan, the Hijaz, Kuwait, and Iraq. Unbeknownst to Sharif Hussein, while he was plotting with the British against the Ottomans, the British were plotting with the French against him. The British and the French had their own plans for the Middle East and they did not include an Arab Caliphate. The British and the French agreed to divide the Middle East between themselves in what became known as the infamous sykes pico Agreement. Britain was to get the Lower Levant, that is Palestine, and what was known as Transjordan back then. They would also get Mesopotamia, which included Basra and Baghdad in modern-day Iraq. France was to get the Upper Levant, that is Lebanon, and the region known today as the Republic of Syria. Initially, France was also to get Mosul in what is now northern Iraq. Sharif Hussein, oblivious of Great Britain's double-dealing, announced his rebellion against the Ottoman Empire in July 1916. Over the next two years, Sharif Hussein's Arab forces allied with the British to take the Hijaz and most of Syria from the Ottomans. The term Arab revolt is a misnomer since most Arabs living under the Ottomans did not support Sharif Hussein's rebellion. In fact, most Arabs refused to fight against the Caliphate. Only a few local Arab tribes actually took part in this revolt and even they had to be bribed with hefty British payments. Sharif Hussein's sons, Prince Faisal and Prince Abdullah, along with the British spy T.E. Lawrence, led the Arab forces taking part in this revolt. Prince Faisal's troops fought in the Levant, while Prince Abdullah's troops fought in the Hejaz. It soon became evident these Arab fighters could not take on professional Ottoman soldiers. Instead, they were used as a guerrilla force to harass and ambush the Ottomans. By October 1918, the combined Arab and British forces had defeated the Ottomans in most of the Hejaz and the Levant. Sharif Hussein ruled over the Hejaz while the British occupied Palestine, Transjordan, Lebanon, and Syria up to Damascus. The British had a more difficult time conquering Mesopotamia, which is the region we now call Iraq. The Arab revolt did not extend that far, so when the British invaded Mesopotamia in late 1914, they were on their own. The first British invasion of Mesopotamia was poorly planned and executed. By the summer of 1916, the British had lost thousands of men in Mesopotamia with very little to show for it. But the British learned from their mistakes. They launched a new Mesopotamia offensive in late 1916 and by the following spring, they had taken Baghdad and were on their way to Mosul. And that was how Great Britain conquered most of the Ottoman territory in the Middle East. The Balfour Declaration The British captured Jerusalem on December 11, 1917. Jerusalem remained in their possession until the war's conclusion. Then, Colonel Ronald Storrs, a member of British intelligence, became its first British governor. While the British were fighting the Ottomans in the Middle East, Zionist sympathy had taken root in London. This led to the Balfour Declaration in 1917, Britain's promise to establish a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Some people today believe the Balfour Declaration is proof of Britain's treachery against the Arabs. However, the sons of Sharif Hussein, the self appointed king of the Arabs, actually accepted the declaration. In fact, during the post war conferences in Paris, Prince Faisal met with Chaim Weizmann, leader of the Zionist movement in Britain. The two men signed an agreement calling for a Jewish state in Palestine, known as the Weizmann Faisal Agreement. There are two key statements in this agreement that should be highlighted. The first is Article 4 that expresses support for Jewish immigration and settlement in Palestine.
1: All necessary measures shall be taken to encourage and stimulate immigration of Jews into Palestine on a large scale, and as quickly as possible to settle Jewish immigrants upon the land through closer settlement and intensive cultivation of the soil. In taking such measures, the Arab peasant and tenant farmers shall be protected in their rights and shall be assisted in forwarding their economic development.
0: The second thing to note is this clause near the bottom of that document.
1: Provided the Arabs obtain their independence, as demanded in my memorandum, dated the 4th of January, 1919, to the Foreign Office of the Government of Great Britain, I shall concur in the above articles. But if the slightest modification or departure were to be made, I shall not then be bound by a single word of the present agreement, which shall be deemed void and of no account or validity, and I shall not be answerable in any way whatsoever.
0: Further proof of Prince Faisal's support of Jewish immigration to Palestine is seen in his correspondence with Felix Frankfurter, leader of the American Zionist movement. In these letters, Prince Faisal expressed his frustration that some Jews and Arabs were causing division between the two groups, while Frankfurter expressed hope both sides could live together in peace. France, on the other hand, was taken aback by this plan. When France plotted with the British to divide up the Middle East, they were promised Syria and Lebanon. To the French, this meant the entire Levant, including Syria, Lebanon, Transjordan, and Palestine. This idea was based on the 12th-century Frankish Crusader states known as Outremer. But the French were not alone in this idea. Arabic and Islamic sources also refer to this entire region by one term, Bilad al-Sham. Problems in Iraq Just like the Levant or bilad sham in Arabic, the word Iraq has historically referred to a region and not necessarily a nation or a state. For centuries, it was simply what Arabs called that region where Arabia became Persia. During the Ottoman era, This territory was made up of three different vilayets, or provinces. There was the Mosul Vilayet in northern Iraq, the Baghdad Vilayet in central Iraq, and finally, the Basra Vilayet, covering much of what is now southern Iraq. The Basra Vilayet was rather extensive, covering most of the western coast of the Arabian Peninsula. This included the modern nations of Kuwait, Qatar, and parts of Saudi Arabia. Kuwait was actually a sub-district within the Basra Vilayet. And like Egypt, Kuwait was technically part of the Ottoman Empire, but since 1899 was effectively under British authority. Mesopotamia is the cradle of civilization, beginning with Sumer over 5,000 years ago. Several ancient societies sprang from this region including the Akkadians, Babylonians, Assyrians, and Persians. Alexander the Great conquered Mesopotamia in 331 BC. After his death, it became part of the Seleucid Empire before going to the Parthians and then to the Persians. In the 7th century, Much of what we now call Iraq was conquered by Muslim armies during the caliphates of Abu Bakr and Omar. Iraq would become an essential part of the Umayyad Caliphate and its successor, the Abbasid Caliphate. In fact, the Abbasids built Baghdad to be their new capital. The wealth, strategic location, and agricultural value of Mesopotamia invited chaos and turmoil. During both the Umayyad and Abbasid periods, the Mesopotamia region experienced multiple occupations, uprisings, rebellions, and invasions. This includes the Mongol invasion of 1258, resulting in the death of nearly a million people. The religious and ethnic makeup of Mesopotamia also contributes to its instability. Mosul in the north is mostly populated by Kurds, while Basra and Baghdad are mostly Arab. These regions are further divided along religious lines with Sunni and Shiite neighborhoods. Christian, Jewish, and Yazidi minorities also have their own enclaves. Regardless of their religion or ethnicity, the people of Iraq have always been fiercely independent. The Muslim empires dating all the way back to the early caliphs were constantly dealing with uprisings and rebellions. The murder of Caliph Uthman ibn Affan is an example of this restlessness. Uthman was killed in Medina, but many of his killers came from Kufa in Iraq. Those Iraqis who killed Uthman claimed to support his successor, Ali ibn Abi Talib, who was also Prophet Muhammad's cousin. Nonetheless, Ali spent much of his five-year reign fighting Iraqi rebels known as Khawarij. Ali was eventually assassinated by these Khawarij just after the morning prayer in his Iraqi headquarters. After Ali's death, the caliphate passed to his rival Mu'awiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, the founder of the Umayyad dynasty. Mu'awiyah appointed brutal, cruel governors over Iraq who used draconian and heavy-handed methods to pacify the region. This worked in the short term, but did not quell the restless nature of the Iraqis. Ibn Zubair learned this the hard way when he led a rebellion against Yazid ibn Mu'awiyah, the second Umayyad caliph. He spent much of his time fighting the Umayyads on one side and the Iraqi Shiites and Khawarij on the other. This constant fighting sapped Ibn Zubair's energy and contributed to his ultimate downfall. The British in Iraq Mesopotamia became a part of the Ottoman Empire in 1533. The Ottomans took a hands-off approach with this region, allowing local dynasties to govern on their behalf. However, by the mid-1800s, the Ottomans were trying to centralize their government and attempted to exert direct control over Iraq with varying degrees of success. And then came the British. Great Britain, a Christian, European Empire thought they could do in Iraq what 1,300 years of Muslim rule could not. The British would fail in their attempt to control Iraq. They were not the first and they would not be the last. When the British took over Iraq after World War I, they tried to impose their understanding of civilization. They tried to create a single Iraqi nationality that ignored ethnicity and religion. Since the British thought they knew what they were doing, they refused to work with local Arab leaders who knew the region and its people. Instead, the British wanted to install someone of their own choosing whom they could control. Besides their arrogance and their ignorance of the region, the British also had a manpower problem. With World War I over, the British public was demanding their government demobilize and bring the troops back home. British military commanders were also hesitant to deploy large troop numbers in Iraq. They believed a large military presence would bring a violent backlash. Additionally, some Arab leaders were pressuring the British for independence. One of these was Talib al-Naqib, the former Ottoman governor of Basra. Active in local politics, Talib al-Naqib was the leader of the Ashraf or descendants of Prophet Muhammad in Iraq. The British got their first taste of things to come in 1919 when three army officers were killed in northern Iraq. Several more British personnel would be assassinated over the next year. The Occupation of Anatolia The Allied forces entered Istanbul on November 19, 1918, after the Ottomans signed the armistice agreement. The Allies immediately imposed a military administration over the empire. On March 4, 1919, the Allies forced Sultan Mehmed VI to dismiss parliament and appoint a new cabinet. The Allies also dissolved the Committee on Union and Progress, the party most young Turks belonged to. The British demanded the arrest of various Turkish leaders for crimes against minorities. Over the next several weeks, the British arrested 60 Turkish officials and sent them to the island of Malta to await trial. Ottoman tribunals resulted in the arrest of an additional hundred Turks. Ultimately, only three low-ranking Ottoman officials were executed. British Prime Minister Lloyd George had big plans for Anatolia. He wanted the Americans to accept a mandate over Istanbul and Armenia. He also wanted the Greeks to take Smyrna and Western Anatolia, while Italy took Southern Anatolia, and France could have the Black Sea region. Meanwhile, He ordered British troops to the Caucasus to protect the recently independent nations there. Lloyd George's plans began to fall apart almost as soon as he made them. The United States had had enough of European wars and had no desire to spend blood and treasure occupying Istanbul. Lloyd George had to use British troops to occupy Istanbul, which he did not mind. But as mentioned earlier, The British public wanted their boys to come home. Hence, the British military was stretched thin. Another idea that did not work out was Lloyd George's promise to create a Kurdish homeland in southeastern Anatolia. That's because he had also promised this same region to the French. To get around this issue, Lloyd George encouraged the Kurds to revolt against the French. However, this backfired when the Kurds subsequently turned against the British, briefly driving them out in 1919. The proposed nation of Kurdistan was never created. The French Occupation of Southern Anatolia French troops occupied the Cilicia region of Southern Anatolia in December 1918. From there, they moved east, absorbing Marash, Ortafa, and Antep along the modern Turkey-Syria border. Despite facing stiff resistance from local Turkish militias, France managed to occupy most of southern Anatolia from Antakya to Antep. The French were more interested in Alexandretta, the region where Anatolia, Syria, and the Mediterranean Sea come together. According to the French, Alexandretta was a natural extension of their Syrian domain. However, Alexandretta was a very diverse region populated by Turks, Arabs, and many other ethnic groups. France eventually incorporated Alexandretta into Syria, but only above the protests of the local Turkish inhabitants. THE ITALIAN OCCUPATION OF Antalya Italy believed they were getting cheated out of the spoils of the war. Back in 1917, Great Britain had promised the Italians Smyrna in western Anatolia if they joined the war with the Allies. Now that the war was over, Lloyd George wanted Greece to have Smyrna. He was obsessed with the classical Ionian Greek society from the Bronze Age. The Italians decided to occupy Antalya just north of the Mediterranean, hoping to force the Allies to acknowledge their demands. And perhaps the Allies might just let them stay there. On April 29, 1919, thousands of Italian troops stormed the southwestern coast of Anatolia. The Italians also tried to bring in ships to support their troops, but President Woodrow Wilson threatened to send American warships if they did. The Armenian Occupation of Eastern Anatolia The British wanted to add large parts of Eastern Anatolia to the newly formed Armenian Republic. This included the province of Kars in northeastern Anatolia. Kars had a large Armenian population, but Turkish Muslims were still the majority. And with the future unclear, these Turks decided to form a government of their own. On January 18, 1919, they formed the Provisional National Government of the Southwestern Caucasus. Lloyd George did not take kindly to that. Four months later, British forces invaded and occupied Cars, arresting and exiling its new government's officials. In July 1920, Britain transferred Cars to Armenia. The Greek Occupation of Smyrna As mentioned earlier, Lloyd George was fascinated with ancient Greece and wanted to recreate a Greek empire. To keep the Italians out, he encouraged Greece to occupy Smyrna and western Anatolia. The Greeks were supposed to be there for five years, after which the people could vote to become part of Greece or remain with the Ottomans. During that five-year period, Lloyd George expected thousands of Greek Christians to move to Smyrna thereby making the vote a foregone conclusion. Greek troops landed in Smyrna, also known as Izmir in Turkish, on May 15, 1919. From there, they pushed eastward, taking the cities of Minimen, Tarbali, Selchuk, Biondir, and Foca by the end of the month. The Greeks then took Bursa in northern Anatolia and Erdin in Thrace in July 1919. Lloyd George justified this occupation by stating these regions were historically more Greek than Turkish anyway. What he really meant was that these regions were more Christian than Muslim. Greece did its best to remove Smyrna's Turkish and Islamic identity. Muslim officials were removed from public service. Public education was only available to Christian children. Christian missionaries were placed in charge of all orphanages and orphans were considered Christian unless proven otherwise. In addition to these subtle acts of aggression, the Muslims of Smyrna were under constant threat of violence and many were even murdered by Christian mobs. Inevitably, once they got over the shock of defeat, the Turks focused their wrath on their foreign occupiers. The first strike against Greek occupation took place in the town of Avalik in western Anatolia where Turkish war veterans engaged with Greek forces. Three days later, the Greeks fought a six-hour gun battle with local militias in the village of Hasilias, also in western Anatolia. The Greeks repulsed these disorganized militias but took their anger out on the local population. They continued pushing east, taking the towns of Odemus and burning a village along the way. The Greeks continued east, taking Bergama in June and then Achisar, which was outside the Smyrna district. This angered the Ottoman military establishment. If left unchecked, Greece may very well overrun all of Anatolia, and the Allies were not doing anything to stop them. Turkish general Yusuf Izzet Pasha took up the fight against the Greeks. Leading a force made up of Ottoman troops and local militias, he ambushed the Greeks at Bergama, forcing them to retreat to the town of Miniman, 35 miles away. Once again, the Greeks lashed out in anger. On July 17, 1919, they killed the Ottoman prefect of Miniman, his six bodyguards, and hundreds of Turkish civilians. None of the Greek civilians and Miniman were harmed. Two days later, Turkish militias forced Greek troops to evacuate the town of Nazili in western Anatolia. But then the Greeks rallied and took Burkama back. Now both sides were angry. Greek patrols stormed through western Anatolia, burning villages as they went. On June 27, 1919, Turkish militias, led by the guerrilla fighter Yoruk Ali, ambushed one of these Greek patrols in the city of Aden. The Greeks were forced to retreat and Yoruk Ali occupied the city for the next four days. During this time, the Turks also lashed out, burning down the Greek section of Aden. The Greeks came back with reinforcements, retook Aden, and burned down the Turkish quarter of the town in retaliation. The Resistance Gets Professional So far, Turkish resistance to the occupation was spontaneous and disorganized. In most cases, the Turkish militias were made up of regular citizens with little military training. But from the very beginning, there were elements of the Ottoman professional military and political establishment who resisted the occupation. Many of these government officials played dual roles. While in Istanbul, they acted as if they were obeying the sultan whose strings were being pulled by the British. But once they were away from the capital, they plotted and planned to drive the occupying forces out of Anatolia. On May 19, 1919, General Mustafa Kemal Pasha arrived in the Black Sea town of Samsun. He had been sent there by Sultan Mehmed VI to disband the Third Army, whose presence had caused riots between Muslims and Christians. General Mustafa Kemal was a Turkish hero for his excellent defense during the Gallipoli Campaign of the Great War, where he defeated a much larger and stronger allied force. General Kemal knew the British were using the Sultan to control the Turks he had no intention of disbanding the 3rd Army. He intended to organize them. Not only was Mustafa Kemal a war hero, he was also a Freemason and former member of the Young Turks. The 3rd Army that he was supposed to disband had been at the center of the coup that overthrew Sultan Abdul Hamid II back in 1908. Back then, The Third Army was a hotbed of Masonic and secret society activity, including the Young Turks. Mustafa Kemal was right at home amongst the soldiers and officers of the Third Army. His reputation from the war only enhanced his appeal. He began using his professional and personal networks in the military and government to organize the Third Army into a new resistance movement. When the Sultan back in Istanbul found out, he dismissed Kemal and ordered his arrest. But it was too late. The Turkish war for independence had begun. In the next episode, we'll continue discussing the Turkish resistance in Anatolia as well as Syrian resistance to French subjugation. Alhamdulillah, this podcast is done very well and it's brought in a lot of new fans a lot of people who are enthusiastic about Islamic history and with this enthusiasm a lot of people ask me you know to cover certain periods or certain empires or eras of Islamic history I get so many suggestions and you know I'm excited and interested in all of them but realistically it's it'll be impossible for me by myself to cover all of these different suggestions that people bring up which is why I do encourage you to look at other Muslims who are working in this field of Islamic history and their work that they have. And there are lots of them out there. It's not just me by any means. One of these Muslims out here who is working in the field of Islamic history, creating online content for people who are fans of Islamic history, is a brother named Ahmad Ibn Aziz Ahmed. Ahmad Ibn Aziz Ahmed is a Muslim of Indian Gujarati descent currently residing in Birmingham, UK. There he is in an administrative capacity, a member of the Ibn Rushd Center of Excellence for Islamic Research. Ahmad Ibn Aziz Ahmed is an Islamic history enthusiast and researcher as well as a blogger, freelance writer, and an aspiring Nasheed artist. His blog currently takes specific focus on the historical accuracy of the popular Turkish TV series, Darillis Ertugrul, as well as a focus around On This Day in Islamic History. Ahmad Ibn Aziz Ahmed believes knowledge of Islamic history can be an effective tool in combating racism and nationalism in Muslim communities, as well as helping to safeguard the Iman, the faith and identity of particularly young Muslims. You can find his work at Ahmad ibn Aziz Ahmed.com. We will have links in the show notes at Islamic History six-one. Ahmad ibn Aziz ahmed.com Ahmad is A-M-M-A-R, I-B-N-A-Z-I-Z-A-H-M-E-D dot com or just go to the show notes, islamichistorypodcast.com slash 6-1. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a member of Islamic History Exclusive. Visit islamichistoryx.com for more information. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. You can also make a one-time donation by visiting islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate or send a tip via Cash App using the cash tag Islamic History. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. as alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. In this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al-Ayubi, known to the West as Saladin. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the fall of Aleppo. But before we get into that, let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. Baldwin IV becomes king of Jerusalem in 1174 after the death of his father, King Amalric. Despite being a leper, King Baldwin IV is determined to defend his realm against Salahuddin. Salahuddin invades Palestine in 1177, but is routed at the Battle of Mongisad. A severe drought hits Palestine and the Levant in 1178. The following year, Salahuddin makes up for the loss at Mongisad by defeating the Franks at the Battle of Jacob's Ford. And with that, let's take a look at Salahuddin's invasion of Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera. The drought that had forced Salahuddin to remove Turan Shah from Damascus in 1179 was still raging through the Levant in 1180. The drought spared no one, Muslim or Christian, and the kingdom of Jerusalem was hit just as hard as Salahuddin's Ayyubid realm. Meanwhile, another Muslim ruler was beginning to make a name for himself. The Seljuk ruler, Kilij Arslan II, had recently defeated the Byzantines, driving them out of Anatolia for good. Kilij Arslan's rise to prominence was a concern for Salahuddin, who wanted to keep the Seljuks out of Al-Jazeera. Al-Jazeera, which means the island, is the traditional name for the region where northern Iraq, eastern Syria, and southern Turkey come together. Bounded by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, this region is almost a large island and of immense strategic value. With this in mind, Salahuddin agreed to a two-year truce with the Franks in 1180. This was a necessary reprieve as they were both dealing with the drought. This also gave Salahuddin time to work on his diplomacy. He entered into agreements with several Muslim controlled towns of southern Anatolia. He also signed a neutrality pact with the Armenians of Cilicia, which kept them from siding with the Seljuks.